Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Kimberly Atkins Store, Jill Weinbanks, Barb McQuaid, and me, Joyce Vance. In exciting news, we have a brand new pale blue woman's tea in the Sisters in Law merch store. Go to politicon.com slash merch and get yours now. They're going fast and they're fantastic. Today, we'll be discussing the recent expression of concern over the Supreme Court's shadow docket made by the court itself. The January 6th committee's efforts to enforce its subpoenas and where they're headed and whether Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has any chance of taking on the mouse. That would be Mickey Mouse. And as always, we'll look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. But before we get started today, it seems like we should really, um, I think, spend a little bit more time talking about a really joyous event because yesterday was Katanji Brown-Jackson Day. She was confirmed with three Republican votes added to the vote of every Democratic senator. It was such a joy to get to watch her watch the vote with President Biden at her side. And I didn't expect it, but I was a little bit overcome with emotion watching the video. How are y'all feeling in the wake of her confirmation? Yeah, you know, I'm really glad, particularly um, that not after the vote, there was a moment for her to speak at the White House. Although, as an aside, I was a little concerned about having a, a White House event um, during the current BA2 COVID surge because I got flashbacks of Amy Coney Barrett's event, but they were outside. It was in the, you know, hopefully everybody stayed socially distant. Um, But hearing Judge Brown speak about not only what it's meant to her and her family, but what it meant to the ancestors, as we say, for her to be there at that moment, how she was able to reflect about how she is one generation removed from forced segregation, and now she's on the U.S. Supreme Court, and she spoke in a way that said, you know, we've made it, we've all made it, all of us. And that's when I was trying to keep myself together, but the floodgates opened. It's such um, a wonderful moment. Um, it, it it really is great for our country. And I really hope that this goes beyond politics. You know, I recall when, I think I mentioned this before, I probably agreed with very little that Condoleezza Rice um, advocated or, it, or her views But when she became Secretary of State, I really remember being so proud that the nation's top diplomat was a black woman. Every she was going to go to countries around the world representing the United States. And that filled my heart. I just felt so proud. I wasn't sure I'd ever see a moment like that. So I hope whoever you are, whatever your political affiliation, whatever you want the court to feel like, you can be proud in that moment. Because I really do believe that it is good for all of us. It's good for America. About you, Barb. Yeah, I I, I agree, Kim. It reminded me of the night that. Barack Obama was elected president. I, you know, leading up to the election, he had a sizable lead. And so it really wasn't surprising when the election results were announced. But I remember at 11 p.m. when they flashed on the screen, Barack Obama, 44th president of the United States, I got really choked up and started to cry. And it was, you know, it was just another a promise of what America could be had been realized. Um, you know, the idea that it really is a place where everyone has equal opportunities to do things. And so to see one more barrier broken, I think resonates with all of us, you know, certainly for women and women of color, uh, this is a particularly joyful moment, but I think it's a joyful moment for all Americans because every time a barrier is broken for any one group, it is broken for every group. And so I, I think it's, you know, it's, 
I say in my lifetime, I've seen so much progress for women uh, and minorities of all kinds. And yet I feel like we still have so far to go. You know, in some ways I'm frustrated that we've only come this far. But every every milestone is really, really important. And so I, I agree it was a really joyful occasion. How about you, Jill? What was your reaction to it? It was, I agree completely with both you, Barb, and Kim. And I'm sure I will agree with Joyce. Um, it was joyous. Totally, I was at my gym and watching it on the TV there and watching the countdown until it got to 50. And then I was like cheering and raising my arms and most people were ignoring it. But when it got to 53, I could not contain myself and was really, really happy. And as you said, it's it is a breakthrough for everyone, not just for black women. And I think we can add to that this was presided over by the first black female pre vice president and certified by the first black woman secretary of the Senate. So it was like, really, we've arrived. And it's, it's a wonderful feeling. And to see someone so qualified, and the only thing I regret is that she had to endure the process that was so unfair and so horrible. Yes, she showed grace and dignity and overcame it, but she shouldn't have had to be subjected to it. Um, I also celebrated last night at a dinner with some very good friends, toasting them, and then this morning woke up to find out that one of them tested positive for COVID. So there's a little bit of negativity in my feelings this morning as I am isolating for the next week, uh, hoping that uh, she did not pass it on to me. Stay positive and test negative, Jill. That's what I say. Absolutely, yeah. Jill. You can't be careful enough. And it's wonderful that you're isolating to protect other people, too. I think that's um, such a smart, responsible thing to do. But I agree with everything that y'all said about um, the confirmation. And something else that struck me is that we live in this moment where nothing seems very permanent in this country, right? There are big concerns that we're just right on the edge of losing Roe versus Wade and privacy rights for women. There's a lot of concern about the midterm elections. Well, this appointment to the Supreme Court of the United States, this is permanent. Ketanji Brown Jackson now has life tenure as a, an associate justice of the United States Supreme Court. I hope one day she'll be the chief justice, but she will be there forever. And that is something that no one can take away from us. So for the first time, Chief Justice John Roberts criticized indirectly the court's use of the shadow docket to decide cases on the merits. Barb, we've talked about the shadow docket before. Remind us what it is and give us a quick explanation of how it was used here. In contrast to the court's regular docket, where they agreed to hear certain cases every term on the merits that get full briefing and full oral argument, the court also has this emergency docket. And so if, for example, the classic case is 
Uh, a prisoner on death row asks for a last minute stay of execution. The court can scramble and do that, especially in its off season, so to speak, when the court's not in session during the summer. Or there might be some procedural issue where they ask for a stay or something else just to preserve the status quo. But it's not supposed to be decisions on the merits because that deserves the full briefing, and the full oral argument. But more and more, what we are seeing is on this emergency docket, uh, we are seeing decisions that are making decisions on the merits. And people refer to it as the shadow docket because it is, you know, kind of off stage. It's not where we're seeing briefing. It's not where we're seeing oral argument. And the worry is, and they also issue these very brief opinions. They call them procurium opinions, often unsigned with just a few paragraphs without a lot of explanation as to why they reached the decision that they reached. And so, um, as you said, this is one, one thing that's extraordinary about this new case is that for the first time we've seen criticism by Chief Justice Roberts of this. Uh, Justice Kagan has been critical of it and Sotomayor and some others. But this is the first time Chief Justice Roberts is saying, wait a minute, folks, I think this is an inappropriate use of this uh, provision that's supposed to be just for emergencies, not as kind of a, a quiet offstage way of deciding cases on the merits. Yes. And in this case, um, what happened is often Barb is right. Sometimes we don't even know the reasons why the court rules the way it does because it doesn't have to explain itself. But we usually find out based on the dissents that are filed with it. So this is a case that we don't know why the majority did what they did, but we know why the dissent didn't like it. And John G. Roberts was joined the dissent. It was written, Jill, by Elena Kagan. What did this dissent say and why is it a big deal, such a big deal that Roberts was on their side this time? Of course, it matters that Roberts is on their side because it's now not just three liberal justices, it's three liberal justices and the chief justice. So it made it um, a four-member dissent and that's pretty close to a majority. And so if there should be a change in the court. That would change how they deal with this. And the bottom line, and I, I want to read part of the dissent because it really does lay out the reasons, but the short answer is they said there just really isn't an emergency. There's no call for having an unbriefed, unargued decision which impacts the merits. And I'll, I'll read you from Kagan's dissent, Justice Kagan's dissent, uh, joined, as we said, by Breyer, Sotomayor, and Chief Justice Roberts. She said, by nonetheless granting relief, the court goes astray. It provides a stay pending appeal and thus signals its view of the merits, even though the applicants have failed to make the irreparable harm showing we have traditionally required. That renders the court's emergency docket not for emergencies at all. The docket becomes only another place for merits determinations, except made without full briefing and argument, I respectfully dissent. And that pretty much answers the question. And this is an important issue involving the environment um, and EPA and clean water. Yes. So it's a the rule uh, was issued during the Trump administration, which basically rolled back protections of uh, wetlands under the Clean Water Act. There was a challenge made to it um, and a lower court blocked that order from t uh, continuing to be in effect. And what the Supreme Court did was basically said, no, you can put it back. It's fine. You can put this order back, which is, it really is a decision on the merits, right? They came to the conclusion that it is fine. And they did it in this really um, secretive way. Joyce, what do you think this means? I mean, I know there, I've seen a lot of things written and we, I think we've even talked about this, that this is 
in a way, no longer the Roberts court, that the Robert, that Chief Justice Roberts is sort of losing control of it, even losing control of the conservative, more conservative wing of the court. Do you think that's true? It's an interesting question, Kim. You know, this is the ninth time that Roberts has been on the short end of a 5-4 ruling since Amy Coney Barrett joined the court. So so that certainly is one possible read that he's out of control. The chief justice is no longer the swing vote, which is the role that he had often played uh, before this happened. And in that sense, he becomes almost increasingly irrelevant so long as the five remaining conservative justices vote together. That's not always Mm. the case. But on key issues like abortion, voting, guns, etc., it's very unlikely that those five conservative justices won't find a way to come together. So in that sense, the chief justice is no longer the deciding factor on this court. And, and we're seeing that manifest in particular on the shadow docket because it's often sort of like the canary in the coal mine on one of these cases. We see shadow docket decisions first because they come up in a preliminary or a procedural posture before the case is fully briefed. Here we've got a situation where I I think you're absolutely correct. The shadow docket here was used to issue what happens to be functionally a merits ruling. That's not what the shadow docket is supposed to do. It's not supposed to be something dark and shadowy. It's simply supposed to be a way that the court can expedite procedural concerns, not, you know, ruling on the merits without issuing an opinion. I think we see John Roberts lashing out with his frustration over this process here. And and this opinion likely signals his increasing concern about his new role on the court that will still carry his name, even though he's no longer the driving factor on decisions. Yeah. Barbara and Joe, what do you think about this? I mean, there are a lot, there's another, there's more um, EPA Clean Water Act cases coming down the pike next term. Um, We have, not to mention all of the other cases we've been talking about, everything from religious rights to um, other things. Do, do you see, do you think that this is a, a, a sign that Roberts might be, there might be a schism between Roberts and some of the other conservatives? You know, it's hard to say how he comes down on the merits. He, he, I think, cares a lot about the Supreme Court as an institution and protecting its legitimacy. So it could very well be that at mm-hmm. the end of the day, he also rules with the majority when it comes to the merits of, of restricting uh, water rights um, under the Clean Water Act. Um but procedurally, yeah. I think that he is, um, you know, holding the line here. And by the way, I just want to say one thing, which is the word WOTUS. Do you know the word WOTUS? You know, we have POTUS and FLOTUS and SCOTUS and all that. But WOTUS is waters of the United States. And that was what is what be coming up in this case in the new term, Sackett versus EPA, uh, about the definition of which waters are protected by the EPA. And, and whether EPA or the court is going to make that definition uh, should it be the agency that has the expertise or should it be the Supreme Court that has business interests at heart? That's my interpretation of the issue that will be coming up. And I also want to point out something we didn't exactly mention, which is, of course, in the case now that was decided in the, in this dissent that we've t- talked about, the parties appealing could have gone to the appellate court and asked for a stay. And they skipped right ahead to the Supreme Court. And so not only does the Supreme Court issue what is effectively, functionally, a merits ruling itself, the Court of Appeals, but they did it without the opinion of the circuit court. And that just makes it even worse, in my opinion. 
You know, and not for nothing, this is an issue. This The whole underlying issue here is that the Supreme Court issued a case called Rapanos years ago, which governs what, what happens to be a, a WOTUS. And that has both civil and criminal implications. So for people who are trying to enforce criminal violations um, that have serious environmental impact, this really makes it much more difficult because we've got a court that sort of upended the rules again without telling us what it means or, or what to do. And this is really the worst of all possible worlds. Once again, the January 6th committee is making news and raising interesting legal issues. Today, I can't wait to get your input on the questions about Congress's powers to enforce subpoenas when they are totally ignored by the recipients. And I have a lot of questions. I want to start with you, Kim, and talk about the newest witnesses to ignore the committee's subpoenas, Scavino and Navarro. Congress voted to refer them to DOJ for criminal indictment for obstruction this week. Who are they and what do they know? And Navarro said he's taking this to the Supreme Court. Does he or Scavino have any valid arguments? Yes. So we talked uh, last week about uh, Peter Navarro, uh, President Trump's former trade advisor, and Dan Scavino, who worked on his comms team, um, signaling that they would not cooperate or or refusing to cooperate. And since then, the committee um, has now referred them to DOJ. So... (laughs) um, so whether they uh, he can take this to the Supreme Court or either one of them, um, anybody can file a petition with the U.S. Supreme Court. Essentially what they're both arguing is that they don't have to show up for this committee because uh, they are protected by the executive privilege, which we've talked about a lot here. Um, they have a lot of problems with that argument. One, the current president, Joe Biden, has made very clear that there will be no executive privilege uh, claims made with respect to the work of the January 6th committee. Um, Navarro and Scavino claim that Joe Biden cannot waive former President Donald Trump's privilege. I honestly think that I'm not certain that that's completely, completely settled. The problem is, if they had a claim of privilege, the way to make it is to get dressed, show up to the committee when they call you, sit down, and when they ask you a question, say, you know, I'd love to answer that, but I can't because that's protected by executive privilege. Had they done that, it would have been a whole lot harder for the committee to refer this, uh, to say that they were in contempt of Congress and refer this to the DOJ for criminal um, uh, for criminal prosecution. I think what's happening here is they're just trying to run out the clock. They're going to claim that they have this privilege. They're going to fight it. I don't know if they'll actually file a petition with the U.S. Supreme Court, but I think for them, all they see that they need to do is make it to January or you know, even make it to November after the elections. And if the Republicans retake the House, they'll see themselves as home free because they know that this committee will probably be dissolved. And that is that. The one problem with that and the fact that they didn't show up and exert this privilege, even though I don't think that it it truly exists, um, is that the DOJ action won't go away. If the DOJ takes action against them, that still that will outlast the committee if it has to. Um, So I think it was a dumb move, but I think it was meant to essentially run the clock out. So before we go on to questions about Meadows and um, Bannon, 
I want to just get a quick answer from all of you on how long you think it will take, because Kim, as you've said, they're trying to run out the clock. So if DOJ takes a really long time to decide about action against Scavino and Navarro, it took three weeks to indict Bannon after the referral. It has been more than four months since, or almost four months, I guess, since Meadows was referred for prosecution. And the last time someone was referred before that, before Bannon, was during the Reagan years, and it took only eight days. So any predictions on how long DOJ is going to procrastinate? My word, not yours. You can change that any way you want. But how long do you think it's going to take for DOJ to act? Well, I, I will say, Jill, that I'm certain they're not procrastinating on any of these. I think the reason for the delay with Meadows has been, now I don't know, this is speculation on my part, is trying to navigate, is he going to be a target or at least a subject of criminal charges for something like conspiracy to defraud the United States or obstruction of an official proceeding. And to charge him with a crime for contempt could really muck up um, anything they might want to do there, using him as a witness or putting him in the grand jury or trying to get a compulsion order. And so I think that with Bannon, he was just an easy sacrifice. Like no, no one thinks he's ever going to give us anything of value. So let's just prosecute him and use him as an example about what happens if you uh, don't comply with the subpoena. Scavino and Navarro are kind of in between um, Meadows and Bannon. And so I could see them as being potential defendants in a case or wanting to put them in a grand jury and compelling them. And so that's why I think it could be a, a tough decision for them. You'd hope that the committee is talking with the Justice Department so that before they make these decisions, they're actually getting, um, you know, at least some notification of what's happening. But um, I, I don't know. I don't know if they'll want to prosecute them or think about you know a bigger purpose for them. So if I had to guess, Barb, I would guess that that communication is pretty one way and that the committee may be signaling to DOJ and DOJ says, thank you very much for the information um, and sort of click, right? Hangs yeah. up the phone um, as we used to do when we worked at DOJ. But I agree with everything you say. I have nothing to add. I think that's just the right analysis. So my only hesitation is that I do not see it mucking up any potential criminal case involving a substantive crime, and that this is a separate substantive crime, and that it affects not just criminal um, activities, not just an investigation of the insurrection, but it affects all of the oversight powers of Congress to compel witnesses. So I am, I, I remain very concerned. But Barb, I want to go back to the first referral to Congress, to DOJ, uh, from Congress to DOJ, and that was Steve Bannon, which took just three weeks. And his trial is now scheduled for July. But there's been some very interesting pretrial action. So can you tell us about that? Yes. Well, as you might have expected, Steve Bannon does not go quietly. And so he has made lots of discovery demands, including internal deliberative documentation from the Justice Department, you know, sort of turning the tables. You want to know all the inside deliberations? Well, I want to know your inside deliberations. Um, he has said he wants to make, you know, First Amendment constitutional arguments and other kinds of things. He had told the judge it was going to take, you know, a very long time to put together his defense. But the judge has, as you say, Jill, now set a deadline of a, for a trial date in July. Um, but most recently, uh, in a very significant ruling, the judge in the case um, ruled that he may not rely on 
an advice of counsel defense. And I think that's a very big deal. You know, one of the things he was going to say is this is unlike most crimes that do not require proof of willfulness. That is that you knew what you were doing was illegal. It just requires that you know what you're doing. So if you, um, you know, illegally possess a gun, uh, as long as you know you're possessing the gun uh, and that something about you makes you a prohibited person like you're a felon, then that's enough. You don't have to know the law, like what the law is, that the law makes this thing illegal. Uh, or you're possessing drugs. You don't have to know that it's illegal to possess the drugs. You just have to know you're possessing the drugs. But in contrast to that, uh, contempt of Congress does have a willfulness component, and that means you had to know that when you refused to comply with that subpoena, you knew that it was illegal to do so. And so one of the defense he raises, well, advice of counsel, my lawyer told me it was okay. And the court, um, and this is a, a Trump appointee who also found um, in um, other cases, on the January 6th cases, uh, found uh, against the government in obstruction of justice cases. So I found it really interesting uh, that he ruled in favor of the government here in rejecting this advice of counsel defense. So Bannon's not going to be able to rely on that. So as Kim said, I don't know what his story is going to be, but you got the subpoena. You could have come in and on a question by question basis, assertive executive privilege, if that's what you were relying on. But instead, you just completely refused to show up. And so I think for that reason, it remains a strong case against Bannon. And of course, if he got bad advice from his lawyer, he still can show up. So he can purge his contempt by showing up and answering questions or taking up uh, the Fifth Amendment if he chooses, but he has to show up and he has to answer specific questions or he has to respond in some way to those questions. So Joyce, that brings us to Mark Meadows, which is nearly four months ago that he was referred for obstruction. And Barb has sort of already addressed her view of why she thinks it's taking so long or whether it's actually a clear case. Um, and there's another difference, which is unlike Bannon, who was not a government employee on January 6th, he was a presidential advisor at the time of the insurrection. He was the chief of staff. And I, I do want to note that uh, Nixon's chief of staff, Bob Haldeman, was indicted, convicted, and went to jail. So that doesn't really immunize you from that, but does it in this case? You know, it must really suck to be Mark Meadows right now, because on the one hand, he's under investigation for voter fraud in North Carolina. I would bring that case, right? I mean, he voted using uh, a residence to register that he neither owned nor had ever set foot in. And he's also under threat of federal prosecution. Mark Meadows looks to me like a guy who needs to cut a deal, to Barb's point. Um, but first, Jill, your question about what his position is with executive privilege. You know, it's interesting that there's been speculation that there's an OLC memo involved. Isn't there always an OLC memo um, that rains on our parade? And this one says that certain high-ranking executive branch officials don't have to even show up for testimony to assert the privilege. I'm painting with a very broad brush here in the interests of time. But it is possible that DOJ could be reading that memo and believing that this is an unwinnable case because of the OLC memo. L let me say something about that. OLC memos do not create substantive rights for defendants. They are memos of policy 
inside of the Justice Department. They explicitly say, you know, all of these memos will say in an early on footnote, this doesn't create any anything substantive that a defendant could use if he were charged in a case. And so I, I'm not really sure that that's what's going on here. I think it's very possible that Barb is correct that he's under consideration in other matters, maybe as a witness, because remember, he's someone who began here by cooperating with the January 6th committee. He turned over these tranches of, of documents that gave the committee a, a good running start here. Maybe he's reconsidering that and decided that his best interests is in cooperation, or maybe he's a subject or even a target of, of investigation here, and the delay is strategic by DOJ. But I think the reason that we're seeing Navarro and Scavino come along right now is that they are somewhat easier cases for DOJ. And they're not identical, by the way. You know, Navarro was the trade representative. He was a little bit further out in terms of executive privilege. Not a very good case. If DOJ wanted a follow-on to Bannon, Navarro would be, I think, the easier of the two to decide. Scavino is a little bit closer. He's the media guy. Maybe he can try to assert executive privilege. I don't think that there's very much of that left after the Supreme Court decides the National Archives case. But this would be for testimony as well as documents. So it's a little bit different. I sort of read this as, as the committee throwing the gauntlet down to DOJ and saying, come on, come on. You're the only vehicle. You're the only people who can help us enforce our subpoenas. It's time. And Kim, do you think that the delay is hurting the committee's work? And will it ultimately hurt all of Congress and all of their oversight work? Yeah, I don't think so, because the committee, keep in mind, like we're talking about these people who are refusing to cooperate. The the committee has interviewed hundreds and hundreds of witnesses at this point. They have um, received thousands, probably tens of thousands of documents. I don't even know how many. Do- they have a lot of uh, documents, information. They have other people who have cooperated. Um, so I don't think so. I do hope, though, and now I'm going to ring the same bell I've been ringing about the DOJ. I do hope they hurry up and bring this to the, the public-facing uh, part, the public-facing portion of the program where they are more publicly making the case to the American people as they wrap up this work and present uh, the final conclusions about what happened. I understand they have to follow the evidence, um, but but their job is different than the DOJ. This is to preserve history. And so I think I would hope that they would begin that part soon, knowing that there's an election coming, um, not to make this political, but just knowing that their existence depends on the outcome of this election and move this along and, and not let the failure of anybody uh, to cooperate stop them. So last question I, I want to ask to both of you, Joyce and Barb, as former U.S. attorneys, and that is, what other options are there to enforce subpoenas if DOJ keeps not acting, if it, if it doesn't indict these people? What else can Congress do? Well, there are two things. I guess I'll talk about one of them and Joyce can talk about the other. Um, one is civil contempt and the other is the inherent uh, power of Congress to hold uh, a, a recalcitrant witness in contempt. So on the civil front, they could file a civil lawsuit asking a judge to enforce the subpoena. Um, in some ways, I think that might be more attractive than a criminal case, which I think just by its nature is going to take months and months and months to play out. Whereas with a um, civil case, you could move for uh, an injunction, uh, a restraining order immediately. 
And so at least theoretically, you could get a decision pretty quickly from a judge in a civil case. So that's one option. Something that I've been thinking about with the civil option, let me just flag this, is that, of course, there would be an appeal process that would follow on, and that would take some time. And I think civil contempt is only good for as long as the body that issues the subpoena is in session. So come the new Congress in January, even if there's a couple of months where the witnesses have to sit in jail, then then everything is over and you start over again. I suspect that that may be why they used the criminal process in, in the first instance. Because like you, Barb, I always sort of wondered why they hadn't gone the civil route. That's really the only route that you can use to obtain the testimony. The criminal prosecution might put somebody in jail, but they don't have to testify at the end of their sentence. And then inherent contempt, which you mentioned, sounds good. A lot of people have asked about inherent contempt, but it hasn't been used for almost 100 years. And the processes necessary to support it just don't exist any longer. An effort to use it would become mired in litigation, although it's really interesting to note that there's been a move to reinvigorate it. Congressman Ted Lieu, the California congressman, has proposed uh, legislation that would restore inherent contempt That's not helpful in this situation, but at least it's forward-looking preparation by Congress, which I think recognizes it has to have a way to enforce its own subpoenas. And I think that's a good place to end because Congress does have that role of fixing what's broken. And this may be one of those acts that has to be passed in order to help us move forward from what we're witnessing now. Well, we've got an epic battle occurring in the state of Florida. It is um, the, the governor of Florida is taking on perhaps the biggest foe anyone could take on in America. I speak, of course, of Mickey Mouse. Um, first, let, Joyce, can you give us our listeners a little bit of background on what the dispute is about between Governor DeSantis and the Disney Corporation? Um, it's, this is over the Don't Say Gay bill, which is now has been signed into law in Florida. What is the Don't Say Gay bill and what has been the public position of the Disney company, which, of course, has a huge presence in Florida? This is such a crazy situation. I I just I feel like we're living in the upside down to even be here. But Don't Say Gay, which, by the way, is a rare instance of good branding by the Democratic Party. Don't Say Gay is a measure that bans schools from teaching young children about sexual orientation or gender identity. If you have two moms, apparently you can no longer talk about that in school in Florida. And DeSantis predictably signed that bill into law earlier on Monday. The Walt Disney Company, bless its heart, wrote in a statement that its, quote, goal was to get the law repealed or defeated in the courts. And that seems like a fair thing for a business that has a large LGBTQ customer base to do. But DeSantis's response was to threaten retaliation. He said that he thought Disney's special privilege should be repealed. Since 1967, state law in Florida has permitted Disney to establish its own government in central Florida. And revoking it is something that a small group of Florida legislators had also mentioned pursuing. So that's sort of what DeSantis's threat is. Uh, Of course, Florida's legislature is already out of session for the year. 
So absent DeSantis calling a special session for them to do this, it's just bluster. He's really just using this for the headlines. It's great publicity among his base. He is already using his strong position against Disney and fundraising emails. But, you know, he would be serious to actually compromise Disney's ability to operate in Florida. It's a business that brings in so much tax revenue, jobs, support for downstream businesses like airlines and hotels and restaurants. I sort of am am beginning to wonder if this may not ultimately boomerang on him. A lot of people love the mouse. Yeah, that's right. A lot of a lot of conservatives love the mouse. Well, Kim, let me ask you about that. You know, Joyce has shared her view about what uh, the Florida legislature might do. Um, he has threatened to revoke that special legal status that Disney has. Um, how would that work if if he did want to go through with it? it? You know, it sounds like civil law to me. So maybe you can explain it to us. <laughs> well, well, it's legislative anyway. So um, Disney, because it is such a big employer, such a big presence in. Um, the state of Florida, it enjoys uh, a lot of legal breaks because it has very um, strong lobbying power. So there have been any number of laws that have passed governing everything from um, telecom uh, laws passed at the state level to gun laws, if you uh, believe it, that they've gotten carve-outs for. Like the gun law, for example, they lobbied for a a carve-out in a certain measure that prohibits uh, guns from being stored in certain places like parking lots to allow Disney um, employees, if they want to keep their guns in their cars in the parking lot, they can. They got to carve out there. So they've been working their power for quite some time. Um, But one thing that DeSantis seems to be hinting at is one specific law. It's called the Reedy Creek Improvement Act. Never thought we'd be talking about that, would you? Well, what that does is essentially, for all intents and purposes, kind of treat Disney like its own town. So when a rule or regulation by, say, the the county or something else that would apply to um, other places won't apply to Disney. Disney basically, Disney World is basically its own sovereign that can make its own rules in a lot of ways. They also get tax breaks. So what DeSantis is basically saying is like, oh, okay, you want to mess with me? I'm going to take all your special privileges away. Again, I agree that I think that this is just bluster. It's meant for politics. It's an election year, shockingly. Um, and DeSantis has never met a culture war that it, he wouldn't love to fight and keep on the front pages. But the crazy thing I find about this, um, and it seems that Disney was kind of taken off, like caught, kind of caught flat-footed by DeSantis's response, and they haven't come back and instantly said, um, I don't know. Oh, and one other thing is that Disney uh, has withheld some... Um, Uh, financial, um, some campaign contributions to some Republicans over this. All right. So it's two things. They spoke out against it without campaign contributions. Well, here's the problem. There's this little thing called the First Amendment. Uh, As much as DeSantis likes to talk about cancel culture, there's a thing called the First Amendment. And it says that you cannot act government in a way that punishes someone based on their speech. Now, obviously, Disney's statement is the purest form, definitional form of speech. And also a a little decision called Citizens United made pretty clear that campaign contributions are also speech and you cannot be punished for that. So if, and again, he probably won't, this is probably bluster, but if he tried this, I think, I don't know, unless I'm missing something, this seems to be, it would be a clear First Amendment violation if the state punished Disney for what it said and its political views. But that's just me. And Disney has great lawyers, right? I mean, Walt Disney can get the best lawyers in the country. 
that First Amendment case, bring it, baby. Right. Jill, um, Kim mentions uh, Citizens United, which I think is really dead on right here. And I'm wondering if you think this is kind of a natural consequence of the Citizens United case. That was a Supreme Court case where the court held that corporations have First Amendment rights in politics. And I think, you know, uh, when it was decided, of course, there were, you know, big, powerful corporations, mostly on the right, who thought that this was a helpful um, decision. But are we seeing perhaps kind of the other side of the consequences of that opinion? It's such an interesting question, and I think this is a very complex, interesting issue because Citizen United said that corporations are people. So once you say that a corporation is a person, does that mean, for example, that the extortion law of Florida, which says that if you threaten injury to the person, property, or reputation of another to compel the person threatened to do or not do something, that's illegal. That's a crime. Well, if the corporation is a person, then the corporation has the same protection from extortion that a human being has. And it it is, I think, an extension of Citizens United, which I personally think is one of the worst decisions because it said money is really speech. Giving money is speech and has allowed big corporations to become very influential through their financial donations. And I think we should point out here that Disney at first did not oppose this law, but got so much pressure from its employees that it then spoke out against the law. It is now, I am told, being hit by employees on the other side of this saying, no, that's wrong, we don't want you speaking out on this. And so it is dangerous for corporations to take political positions on controversial subjects. And whether or not this can withstand uh, legal scrutiny is going to be very interesting. We've had other corporations take actions like moving the the All-Star Game out of Atlanta because they wanted to punish the voting restrictions that were passed by Georgia. And... I don't know whether that's going to ultimately be a effective way for corporations to influence the policies of the United States or whether it's going to hurt them as corporations. Yeah, Joyce, what do you think about it? You know, it's sort of like a boycott, right? You think about uh, the boycotts of the civil rights movement, uh, boycotting lunch counters or buses or other kinds of things that can have, you know, give, um, you know, otherwise uh, underdogs uh, a larger voice collectively when they work together to um, use their economic power to um, influence governments and other things. And now what we're seeing is these, you know, behemoths uh, like the Disney Corporation, or as Jill just mentioned, Ma- Major League Baseball moving its all-star game out of Georgia over the voting rights. Could we see corporations, um, you know, using their corporate might to effect change in ways like, you know, what if some large corporation favored abortion restrictions or some other law um, and they use their power to uh, influence the government? Um, are we concerned that, or is, it, is that just what already happens every day? You know, the way the gun industry lobbies government, is that what's going on or is this a new, uh, a new development that should concern us? Well, you know, Barb, Corporations are citizens just like you and me. I mean, if this Supreme Court keeps it up, they're going to have a right to vote, too. Um, 
I think that it's an interesting question, right? Are, are corporations exerting new and fresh influence? And my suspicion is, no, they're not. They've always asserted influence. Perhaps we're seeing them come a little bit more into the public square on these issues in a more direct fashion than we're used to. But they've always found ways to do it, right, by forming groups or maybe unions exerted, asserted some influence. Um what I do think, though, is, is new and is fresh is we need to have a conversation about what the role of these businesses should be and, and whether we want them to have this sort of an influence. This was inevitable um, from the moment the Supreme Court decided to permit corporations to have more and more of a voice in this area. This is sort of like now the shoe is on the other foot. I wonder if we'll see litigation and if the court may try to reconsider and even limit its earlier ruling now. Yeah, well, we'll have to keep an eye on it. And in the meantime, um, you know, um, nothing is uh, outside the realm of controversy, even, even Mickey Mouse. There's so much news going on this week that we're glad to have really great questions from our listeners that let us talk about a few more issues. If you've got questions for us, please email us at sistersinlawpoliticon.com or tweet using the hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, keep an eye on our Twitter feeds during the week. We'll try to get there and answer as many as we can throughout the week. Our first question is from Thomas in Toledo, Ohio. Thomas asks, what do you think is the reason for the verdicts in the trial of the kidnapping plot for the Michigan governor? Barb, it seems like that one should head your direction. Yeah, I was very surprised. The um, jury came back after a trial of four men who were accused of conspiring to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, found two of them not guilty and were hung as to the other two defendants, which means, of course, they were unable to reach a unanimous verdict either to convict or to acquit. I was very surprised that we didn't see swift convictions of all four. I paid pretty close attention to the case, although, as we all know, unless you're actually in the courtroom every day watching everything the jury sees, it is difficult to to know and to get a feel for how the evidence is coming in. But, boy, there was such strong evidence um, that you know, not only did they talk about this plan, but that they took action on this plan. They went and surveilled uh, her vacation home. They trained, like, they built a, a prototype um, shoot house, they called it, and hung human silhouettes where they could practice shooting to extract her from her home with her security detail there. They um, surveilled the underside of a bridge uh, where they planned to place explosives so that they could delay the police response to the kidnapping. Um, and then they were arrested when they thought they were going to buy explosives. And it turns out instead they, they were handcuffed and arrested. And so they also had two people who were part of the group um, who pled guilty and admitted that they did this and testified against the group. And so it is baffling to me how we could see this result. I hope we learn what the breakdown was. Was this just one holdout juror? or a couple people who are very suspicious of the government and didn't want to follow the law. You know, sometimes there's jury nullification where they say, even though I know the facts are true, I just don't like this prosecution, so I'm not going to find the defendants guilty. I don't know if that's what happened there. So I, I hope we learn more in the coming days, but I also hope 
that the prosecutors will have the courage to try this case again, because I think if you allow them to walk free without consequence and accountability, they'll only be empowered uh, to engage in more of this kind of conduct. I think targeting of our public officials for violence uh, is such a dangerous place to be in America that I think this conduct really needs to be held accountable. And so I'm hopeful that the government will have the courage to take this case on again. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy, right? You've got the two acquittals, so those cases are over. And then you've got the two ringleaders where the juries hang. Um, And I tend to lean like you do. I think cases where the jury hangs, unless there's a major evidentiary problem that developed at trial, that those cases should be retried. Our next question comes from Suzanne in Cincinnati, Ohio. She asks what we make of the Justice Department reportedly hiring 131 more lawyers to assist with January 6th cases. Jill, can you talk about that? I think my understanding is that this is what DOJ wants to do, what they're asking for funding for. I'm not sure that they're actually to the point of of hiring yet. Exactly. And I think that there may be a difference in opinion between between some of us in this group. Um, Even I, though, who am the most skeptical of the time it's taken to get higher up in the chain of prosecution for January 6th events, I am encouraged by the desire to add more prosecutors and by the announcement that they are expanding the grand jury's scope from just those who invaded the Capitol on January 6th to those who funded and planned the invasion. So I think those are good signs. And it is one of the largest cases ever handled by the Department of Justice with over 700 cases so far. So it's not a surprise that they need to hire more lawyers. I mean, they are calling on lawyers from many U.S. attorneys' offices around the country to assist. But That just means that the cases in those districts are not being fully uh, staffed. So more attorneys is a good thing, and I hope that it means that they can speed up the investigation and get higher up in the chain. Our last question is for me. It comes from Carla, and she asks, when you come across a yarn that you love and would like to add it to your stash— How much do you buy if you are not sure what knitting pattern you will be using for that yarn? I see Brisby thinks that I need more yarn. Well, Carla, let me tell you, when it comes to yarn buying, um, I'm reminded of the wonderful answer that our newest Supreme Court justice came when she was being uh, questioned by Hawaii Senator Maisie Hirano, who asked her about her own knitting habits and her yarn. And she said that she had a basement full of yarn. Um, I I sort of live by that principle, too. I always think it's easier to have an extra skein of yarn on hand than to run out midway through the last sleeve on a sweater. So that's as much as I'm going to confess to, but I will say a lot of our basement is full of yarn. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters-in-Law with Kimberly Atkins-Store, Jill Weinbanks, Barb McQuaid, and me, Joyce Vance. You can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sistersinlaw. Go to politicon.com slash merch to buy our new woman's tea, and please support this week's sponsors, Jenny Kane, Helix, HelloFresh, and Bloom Nutrition. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them. They really help make this show happen. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag sistersinlaw on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, 
And please give us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. See you next week with another episode, Hashtag Sisters-in-Law. And it's Rapanos, and I just mispronounced it, but I'll live with that. Is it? I've always said Rapanos, Joyce. And you it know, came out of my we district. Had, you know, we had a case, and so we were told to say it that way, and I've always found it to be a confusing word, so I'm just going to live with the ambiguity. Okay. It's you like, what are all those case names where people pronounce them differently? There's one that Loretta says really funny that we all say differently, Gilio. but I can't think what it Gilio. is. Gilio. Gilio. That's right. <laughs>